Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Hi, my name is Ian Stasikevich, and I'm a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast, Trent Opalock talks about his work on the film Captain America II, The Winter Soldier. The Winter Soldier finds World War II hero Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America, adrift in a present day he doesn't understand. Meanwhile, a figure from Rogers' past emerges, and it becomes clear that S.H.I.E.L.D., the special ops organization they both work for, may not have America's best interests in mind. Trent, thanks for taking the time to talk about The Winter Soldier. Now, Elysium was a big film, but this is a big Marvel film, and as far as the films you've worked on, where does The Winter Soldier stand in terms of scale? Well, the most intimidating thing for me was District 9. That was the, 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 the most freaked out I've ever been as far as scale was that because I couldn't wrap my head around, like, the longest production schedule I had had before District 9 was, you know, maybe a five-day shoot, right? So I could figure out, okay, five days, you know, we'll break it down. And, and to me, when I started looking at the script for District 9 and the amount of days, and I, I can't remember, it wasn't that long of a schedule, but it was, you know, well beyond anything close to to what I had shot as far as the number of days in one project. So I just thought, like, man, how, how are we going to get through this? Like, it just seemed insurmountable, right? And then, you know, now I've done a few more, so I get it. Like, it, and every project seems, you know, bigger than, 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 you know, what you can do. But, you know, by the time you're halfway through the schedule, you know, you're so busy. And I've found this on, on every film that I've done. You look at the, the, the day count, you know, like I think cap was 86 days. And you just think like, man, how, you know, it's a marathon. And then before you know it, it feels like you blink and you're halfway through. And then you blink again and you're in your last week and then, you know, the last day. And so it does, you, the, the cool thing is, is you're so busy that it really does zip by very quickly. Captain America is an established brand. Were there mandates about the way it should look? It's a completely different, you know, it's a, it's a different scenario altogether. You know, it is much more collaborative. There, there's a whole bunch of people, and they're all great people. And, and the funny thing is, is they all know that world more than any of us do. You know what I mean? Like Kevin Feige, the head of Marvel, he knows Cap way more than, than, than anybody else, in my opinion, you know, and a lot of the guys at Marvel are like that. So on Cap 2... You know, the Russos had their their main pitch, you know, as far as I understand it, was they wanted to bring Cap down to Earth, back to reality, and 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 shoot it, you know, rather than a guy in tights. It was a, a real guy, you know, as real as you can make Captain America, right, with his story and everything, but much treated much more realistically. And shoot him in, you know, modern-day Washington, D.C., and, and the vibe of it wasn't about this guy flying around more about the suspense and, and paranoia, and it's like a 70s spy thriller, 70s thriller, you know, and we, we talked about a bunch of references, you know, Three Days of the Condor, and that's where it got really cool with me was once they cast Robert Redford, that just clicked into place as far as solidifying what we were doing and the type of movie we were trying to tell, and that affected every decision, you know, that affected, you know, framing and camera moves and all that, and yeah, there's the, you know, the epic battle sequences and stuff like that, and you're just covering them to to make that footage very dramatic and, and, and really engage the viewer. But as far as the storytelling aspects, you know, that was the vibe that we were going for, was that, that paranoia in, in Cap's head, you know, that you would get in any of those classic 70s thrillers, you know? So when you say you were going for the 70s vibe, does that affect the lenses you choose or the way you lit the film? Well, that, it all comes down to trying to bed that character in, a, in the real world that we all see out, outside our front doors every day. So that came down. Now, there is the cinematic aspect of, okay, we, we're going to shoot it on Panavision anamorphics, you know, because we're, we are telling a story. It's not like documentary style. And that's also, that, that's kind of a nod back to 
those 70s thrillers where a lot of those films were shot on anamorphic lenses. And to me, that was a stylistic choice that, you know, I talked to the, the boys about Joe and Anthony Russo, and they were completely down with it. And, and I think Marvel was down with it. They didn't jump up and down with joy over the idea, but they were certainly open to the, to the idea. And, and then as we started shooting tests and looking at footage, I think they got more and more into it. And they have done, I think the first Thor, or maybe both Thors have been anamorphic, I can't remember, but it wasn't their first anamorphic film anyway. What series of anamorphic lenses did you use? It was mainly G-series, but then I think, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly, but for different scenarios, we would have uh, E's and C's in as well, but G's were the main ones. So you're going for more of a modern anamorphic look as opposed to trying to find the same lenses like Owen Roisman might have used. It wasn't that because I wasn't, I wasn't trying to make it a period piece. You know, we did extensive testing for both Elysium and, and Captain America with those same lenses, and we basically chose a revised version. On Elysium, we had very specific sort of ideas with, okay, Elysium all the stuff on the floating environment of Elysium, we're going to shoot with these lenses. And then everything on Earth, you know, this, the location work we did in, in Mexico City, those were shot on older anamorphic lenses. It wasn't, so we just erased that. that. That was particular to that film. But on Cap, we reshot those tests. We looked at, Joe and Anthony and I looked at the results. And, um, and of course, we didn't have any real flashbacks or anything like that. Like we, you know, we didn't, we weren't trying to paint two different worlds, I guess is what I'm saying. And so, yeah, we, we just went with a more refined version and, um, you know, it, it depends too. Like it, it all depends on, on what it is, what the scene is or what the, what the story is that you're trying to tell. But, you know, we went crazy on Elysium with the Panavision Anamorphic Flare series, you know, and they've, they've basically removed all of the, the coatings on those optics so that they just you get light bouncing around inside and it's completely polluted with flares. But that was great for the flashback sequences of Matt Damon's character when he was a kid growing up on Earth, right? And so that fit for that. And for Cap, it, it just felt like it, we required a much more refined you know, version of those lenses. What camera system did you use? You know, I shot uh, District 9 on Red Ones. I shot Elysium on, on the Epic. And we shot Chappie, the film that I did with Neil after Captain America 2. We went back to the epic again. And, but for Cap, you know, there, there's two things. Um, I had started shooting a lot more Alexa on commercials. I did a year solid of, of commercials uh, after Elysium. And pretty much 80% of that commercial work was was with the Area Lexus. And I had a comfort level with that. I was really sort of uh, appreciating, you know, what the, what that camera was and some of the images that, that we were getting with it. And so I just had more sort of confidence and I was leaning towards that. And then, you know, uh, Marvel is also, like we, we talked briefly about camera systems. And um, one funny thing was, is it was never really like, oh, is it is it going to be film or or digital, you know, it, it, and I guess that's the reality of making a film in 2013, 2014, is that unfortunately, you know, for somebody that loves film, you know, that's not really where the conversation starts anymore. And maybe it is with certain people, you know, Chris Nolan, Wally Pfister, I mean, obviously they don't even have that conversation. They just go shoot film. Um, but th the reality is, is it was more like, oh, is it Alexa or is it Red? Or is it whatever, you know, Sony F, you know, F65 or, or whatever. But for us, it was a pretty short conversation. Uh, you know, Marvel uh, has been shooting a lot of their stuff with the Alexas. They've been very happy with it. They've also invested in the uh, Codex Vault system for post-production. And they were most interested in that because they've got this complex post-production pipeline with their VizFX companies and they started doing there's so many vis effect shots in a movie like cap 2 that those guys started up pretty much when we did in principal photography and they were rendering out elements for footage to be pre-released early at comic-con for example so we were actually affecting our schedule and sliding shots or little scenes up little baby scenes up up in our schedule to accommodate the comic-con dates 
And it also keeps things looking uniform in the continuity of the Marvel Universe. Uh, they have this kind of uh, shared aesthetic, right? Absolutely. And that's a funny thing. That's, you know, when I saw the first, about two weeks before they had picture lock, uh, I went down and I did some quick DI reviews uh, with Steve Scott at Technicolor, and I screened the rough edit. I would say it was about 90% picture lock. But it really hit me. I was like, wow, this is, you know, this is really almost like Avengers 1.5. And that was the first time. I mean, we kind of joked about that on set with some of the big sequences that we were shooting, some of the big action stuff in the third act. But when I watched the film, it felt like an extension of that Avengers, which is, of course, such a key component to the success of all of those films. But you were still able to set a unique tone through subtle references to the spy films you mentioned earlier. The tone that our film had, it's a little bit darker, it's a little bit more about the paranoia, because that was the story that we were telling. But, you know, you can certainly see, and, you know, I know Avengers is off and running, Avengers 2 now is off and running, and I imagine there will be a connection, even at a small level, with what we've done and, you know, there's a new, this Thor. Is, you know what I mean? Like, it's all one world now, and you're looking at it through different perspectives. Well, like, for instance, uh, the first Avengers film was 185 to 1, as opposed to the Winter Soldier's 240 to 1. And with Cap, it works well because it's about this guy and the world around him. You can place him in the frame with a lot of emptiness. And so that's, that's one sort of way that, you know, that, that can work for you. But it is funny because you're stuck with that 240 and it works great in some environments, but that sort of informs the production designer on, okay, well, let's not spend all our resources top to bottom on a set because there's, there's very few opportunities to show that in a shot, you know, you know, especially when you're, when the storytelling and the characters are driving the, your camera decisions rather than, okay, we're going to tilt down from the ceiling, you know, and find the guys just so we can look at all the money that we've spent on this big tall set that goes up 40 feet. So, you know, it, it is something, it's a very important element. And, and, and that's something, that's kind of a responsibility that, you know, I, I'm realizing more where it's like, okay, well, that affects things down the line. And everybody's got to be on the same page, you know, because if the production designer is saying, hey, this is what I had, you know, in mind, well, that's fantastic, but it's going to be very difficult for us to capture all of that cool detail up there. You know, that's just an example, but, um, you know, there, there, I'm sure that there are some stories that are better told, you know, with a one three three aspect ratio, you know, with, uh, uh, what was it, Buffalo 66, you know, fantastic film. And, uh, and, and that was told very well with, with, uh, with that aspect ratio and, and, um, and those tools, right? And then also it feels well, like when you get into the action sequences and you've got helicarriers and you've got all of this stuff, you know, going on with this epic, epic, you know, wide shot, it's, it, you can get some beautiful epic frames with the 240 aspect ratio. I'd like to talk more about the scale of the film and how all of the action takes place in and around Washington, D.C. Yeah, the main, the main core of, of the story takes place in D.C., which is funny because, of course, we shot like a week in D.C. and, I don't know, like six weeks in Cleveland for D.C. But yeah, story-wise, it takes place in D.C. Well, there's another connection to the Avengers, which filmed Cleveland for New York. How did you make the transformation into Washington, D.C. for The Winter Soldier? extensive scouting. Even before I was on the project, Marvel and Joe and Anthony Russo had the directors, uh, they scouted all over the States. And I know on, you know, out, out East, New York, Cleveland, everywhere. And then basically what it comes down to is with Cleveland, it was, it was great because Joe and Anthony knew like, Hey, this street here, this building just feels like it, it's been, you know, it's a chunk of DC. And the, the only thing is, is like any location, you know, a certain shot size in a certain direction is going to work very well for how you're trying to portray that location. If you pan left and you see something that is not DC-like, that's going to reveal the gag. So obviously you pick your background 
and you try to stay within that, that becomes your canvas. And, and so to be like, okay, this chunk here at this angle looks like, it, you know, I buy that as DC. And fortunately, with the architecture and the stone buildings in, in the core downtown part of Cleveland, there was quite a few options for us. And, and it's cool because, you know, to, you know, I haven't spent that much time in Washington, D.C. I've shot a, a couple of projects there. But after shooting and scouting in D.C. and then shooting and scouting in Cleveland, you know, you just see like, yeah, I, I completely buy that. That feels like it's part of, of that same block that, you know, Cap lives on. You just have to frame things and, and find backgrounds that feel like they're, they're part of that same world. And of course, you had access to visual effects, uh, digital backlog. Yeah, yeah. And a, and a big thing was the uh, Triskelion building. That's the key building in the story. That's like S.H.I.E.L.D.'s headquarters, right? And so uh, we would always try to place ourselves so you'd see the Triskelion building off in the deep background, you know, and that sort of kept us oriented like, oh, yeah, okay, that's where we are in relationship to that scene that just took place there. We're cutting out of that office, and here we are, you know, 10 miles away. There it is in the background on the horizon. Now, the Triskelion as a whole, I understand, is a creation of the film, uh, but some actual locations were used, like uh, the lobby, for instance. That was, this, that was in Cleveland. That was this incredible location, and it's... Uh, a gallery, it is a museum on one side and an art gallery. It's just a beautiful building in Cleveland. So you shoot live action plates there and then with CG extensions. And then, of course, the tower that rises up out of it is all CG, and that doesn't exist. And how did you light the lobby? Uh, we had a massive soft sun, and we chose the time of day because we had fantastic sunlight, natural sunlight coming in and you get these great shapes that give you a sense of scale because it's broken up sunbeams. So there's a texture there, you know, and it looks one way when it's flat or when the sun, when it's completely negative and there's no, it's open shade rather, you know, it it looks amazing, but you don't get the same sense of scale in, in as dramatic a way visually as when the sun is coming in and it's interacting with the glass ceiling and it's all broken up and refracting so unfortunately when we did our tech scout we realized that we had a window where we would have to capture our wides within that one window if that's what we were going after with all that great broken up backlight so like any production you know you have your wish list you know my selfish lighting requirements of what i'm going after and then you mix that with the realities of when is Redford going to show up? You know, how much, how much time are we going to spend talking about the scene with the actors, you know, while the sun is moving, you know? So there's like anything in any film or any project, there's the desired results technically that you're going for mixed with all of these other elements that to a certain degree are completely out of your control. And so you try to make a plan that uh, best delivers, you know, opportunities to go after what you're, what you're targeting. You know, like we want to be here in this direction at this time of day, because we know the sun is going to be there and that's going to give us the biggest visual impact with the way the light is, is interacting with the environment and bouncing around. And then of course, you know, you jump in for coverage and then you, you know, by that time the sun is gone and we'll put up a soft sun and try to reproduce on a smaller scale that same vibe. So, you know, Redford and the gang are still backlit. It's just a little bit more challenging when it is an exposed environment like that because essentially you're shooting in a glass top uh, box. So, yes, it's, it's essentially it's an exterior location. So you, you pick and choose your directions and time of day. Where were your stages? All of our sets were built on um, in Manhattan Beach at the Manhattan Beach Studios. That was the previous home base to Marvel. And they've since changed, and now they've picked everything up and moved over to the Disney lot. But back then, their Marvel offices were there. And so we took over most of the stage space. You know, we started off uh, with a handful of, of uh, sets on three or four stages. We shot those out. We bounced over to Cleveland in the middle of our schedule, DC and Cleveland. 
And during that time, uh, they struck those sets and started building the new sets. And then we came back and finished our schedule at Manhattan Beach. And Pierce's office was one of those. That's a great looking set. Yeah, there was a menace to it. it it's sort of a stark gray concrete walled, you know, around you. And it doesn't, it's not exactly welcoming. And so that's kind of interesting because it sets up some, some character stuff and, and it sort of places that Pierce character in within his environment. And, you know, I think subconsciously you're like, okay, that's how you receive this guy. That's the first time you see him. And that, that presents that character and that moment with Cap in, in a certain light, right? And then the great thing is, is you've got this expansive view behind him looking out over D.C., and so it's a great way to reach out and, again, remind everybody where you're at. He's looking down on the world, so it's a, it's a position of power. The only bummer was is some of the sets, you know, and I love the look of them and everything. Technically, there were some, there were some sets that were very challenging as far as reflections because where he's meeting the board, for example, you know, there was multiple, there was three layers of glass there was one, the exterior wall in L shape that was all glass, floor ceiling. Then there was a screen. You know, there's a screen in the middle of the room, and that's another layer of reflections. And then on the opposite wall, the interior wall, there was big picture windows as well. So <clears throat> looks fantastic. Very difficult to light and to shoot, you know, move your cameras around and move your crew around and not catch reflections. So one of the things that we did there was primarily we lit that uh, set with built-in practicals. So we've got uh, grid lights up above them, and we would just we would have rows and columns. We would turn down or shut down or dim down, you know, whole sections of that, so that we would push in that soft light from one direction. And then for the most part, with our 240 frame, we could avoid revealing our gag. So that was a way that we could shoot wide moving camera positions where they could arc, you know, they could dolly around or we'd have a little techno crane in there and we could show the environment, follow an actor around that environment in an expensive type of shot without revealing lighting uh, equipment or camera equipment. And then so it was a quick conversation with, with the gaffer and I, Jeff Morell where we would turn on certain units in the grid overhead or, or turn, you know, turn certain ones for a little bit of a negative. And so it was a big soft toppy source uh, that was controlled depending on what direction we were looking in. The Winter Soldier has some of the most kinetic practical stunt work I've seen in any Marvel film so far. The action is really top tier. This is the thing, this is a big conversation with the Rousseau brothers and I, where we always felt the, the, most important element was to embed the camera and therefore the viewer into the action itself, which is something that I really feel strongly about pretty much in any film. You know, I think a really effective way of, of telling a story is to place the viewer in that environment, which isn't exactly a novel idea. A lot of people approach scenes like that, but you know, there's kind of like, there's a cinematic way to, to tell a story and you can, it can be more of a, presentation to the viewer or you could drop down inside there with say handheld cameras and get right in the action and i think a lot of what we did if it was successful was you know a combination of the camera work and fantastic blocking with the stunt department and the stunt performers that that was one thing that when i read the script and while we were shooting i was like holy smokes man there's so much action in here and especially in the third act, I just thought like, man, I, you know, you don't want to pummel the audience. I noticed that your second unit director was uh, Spiro Rosados and uh, the cinematographer was Igor Meglik. Yeah, Igor and Spiro, those guys are just fantastic. I mean, they, they, the car stuff that they did was, was just ridiculous. Some of the, the Cleveland, and, and that was the thing, getting back to what I was saying about shooting in Cleveland, it was completely two different worlds. Like it was incredibly restrictive to shoot in DC, even sort of basic things that you would want to do. Like let's put a remote head on a grip tricks or like a, you know, like a golf cart, you know, and follow these characters running around. Like it's not that big of a footprint production wise, but because of where we were, 
it was they were very, very restrictive with what we had available for tools. Going to Cleveland, it felt like, you know, we were in a in a candy store. We could almost do whatever we wanted and fling cars or fling actors off bridges and and that that was just fantastic. So those guys really exploited that environment to achieve some great results with those action sequences. And the cool thing is is like a lot of that stuff is is developed over months and months of preparation and through animatics. Cap two was was a film I had done a little bit of uh, used animatics in, in the small way before on previous films, but I'd never done anything as extensive as Cap 2, where pretty much almost, I, I would almost say all of the action sequences were fully prevised. And that's part of the pipeline. That's part of obviously, you know, you can reap the rewards of all of this planning ahead of time. And then you know, okay, this is what we need. This is this is what it's going to take to to achieve this sequence. So it's one thing to see it in an animatic, but to see it come to life with what Spiro and Igor were doing, it's just amazing. And then they put you right in there, you know, and they'll jump back obviously for a sense of scale, but then you're in there for the ride, and uh, yeah, it's pretty dramatic. Was your collaboration a matter of turning these sequences entirely over to your second unit? Well, we were involved in the development stage. We were much more involved, uh, and of course, you know, we would we would share we would share the actors. So obviously, you know, uh, Scarlett and Chris would be on main unit, and then we would send them over to second unit. The Cleveland stuff it was quite congested actually because with our schedule we had so much on our plate that second unit would be shooting a hundred meters from us, and they would be up on the bridge, and we were down in an intersection. And we would literally be, okay, we're going to hold now. They're going to roll full automatic weapons up there. Then they're going to cut and we're going to go. And it was two separate units, but geographically we were quite close. And then we would bounce over and, and, and check on what they were doing. But for the most part, I mean, they were off as their own unit and, and doing their thing using the, the previs reference as a guideline. And the great thing about those guys both Igor and Spiro, they've done a bunch of the Fast Five movies and they work together quite a bit. And so you have what's in there in the previs and that's great. That's those are the required deliverables, you know, that they have to hand over. But you get just fantastic other angles. And they've shot so much of that second unit stuff that they just know how to tell that story and to punch those the impact out of those moments. And so you get all of this bonus stuff. I noticed that there are different kinds of action in the film. For instance, we start out with this very slick choreographed sequence on the shield vessel uh, on the boat. Uh, but the Winter Soldier's attack on the causeway is more chaotic, like, uh, like the car chase in John Frankenheimer's Ronin or the bank heist sequence from Michael Mann's Heat. That had such an impact, that sequence from Heat, that... You know, that's a conversation that you often hear. I shoot, I tend, you know, I shoot a lot of action stuff. And so that's always a reference. It's like Blade Runner lighting reference. You know, everybody, everybody has these things in their pocket from their past. that are like, oh my God, you know, this is the vibe that we're going for. And heat is one of those things. I mean, it's, it's really hard to beat what Michael Mann and those guys did with that sequence. And so with the... The causeway sequence there, that was what, you know, that was a much more, uh, you say, raw, it was more, it was a little bit of a looser approach, and it was, it was about placing you in there like you were placed in the heat sequence. The thing, you know, with on the ship, that was kind of cap, kick, and butt, and yeah, it was, it was a bit of a different thing. Obviously, you know, I think the big thing, too, is when you've got a two, you know, two hour long movie, uh, and there's a lot of action. I think it probably, you're using different, it's almost like different chords in a song or something so that it's not relentless and just pummels you with action. It's almost like you try to extract as much as you can with different techniques for different sequences. Was all of your second unit work shot anamorphic as well? Everything. I mean, the film was shot anamorphic. Generally, you'll shoot a spherical for, say, elements or something. That's the only only reason that you would ever shoot spherical to mix it up. But that would be more of a technical vis-effects requirement. Or just for crash cams and other special rigs. 
yeah, you could cheat with little quick cuts, you know, 22 frames here for this edit. But generally, I try to resist that because I think the danger there is you water down the visual effect that you're going for, and it can start to feel like a collage of camera systems. And, you know, that that's true for a number of projects. Like on Elysium, you know, we would have security cameras and you would have this and, you know, not GoPros, but, you know, 5Ds and stuff. For example, for the Causeway sequence, we shot a lot of that with Epics rather than Alexis because we were trying to get right into the action and the operators were fleeing the cameras around the actors and working in tight spaces. And so that happened to be the best tool for the job. The scale of the action runs the gamut from uh, the three helicarriers doing battle above the Triskelion to Cap fighting something like 10 bad guys in an elevator. Yeah, that was very challenging as far as, uh, you know, a little set piece. But it was cool because it was one of those things that I know Joe and Anthony were always really excited about it because it's like, I've never seen that. And, you know, generally that scale of a fight sequence takes place in a larger environment. And now it's like, you know, 10 guys or 12 guys in a, in a shoebox, basically. So that was, it added like an interesting element to, to the sequence. How do you cover a scene like that where a lot is happening in a little space? We, you know, we would fly walls. So we, we would remove, we would shoot a bunch of the action, you know, from the inside, say, with, with our glass walls on the elevator. So we're using the reflections. We've got green screen behind it because the thing's in motion as well, right? Throughout the sequences, it stops. So you're surrounded by green screen the whole time. Yeah, you're surrounded by a combination of green screen, but then we had massive lights. I think the actual units were LED color forces, but they're like six feet long each, and we had a bank of them in, in each of these sources. And then we ran the content through a media server. So that was how we were able to simulate the moving environment. So you feel like, okay, when Cap's in there, and he punches the down button, say, you know, we would move the light so it feels like he's moving, you know, through that environment and you feel the shadow of, uh, of an architectural piece between the windows, you know, like you would feel like this, this sliding shadow come across him. And then when he's in there with Sam and they're having that conversation, we would time that so, you know, we're moving the exterior daylight with the shadow caster and then we would time that to where, okay, now it dips down to 80% negative and we would have, I can't remember what was first, it was either sodium or mercury, but we would have a different color through, fed through the media server. So now it felt like, okay, they went into a underground section and then they're revealed in the helicarrier bay and that has its own lighting environment. So all of that was built in, all of those parameters were built in and played out through the media server. And it was just a fantastic way of, okay, we've got green screen, We've got those lights on wheels, and depending on what our backgrounds are, we would just slide around and either use two of those units or one of them and drive in from one side. And, you know, we could always fake the environmental effect through the lighting uh, that would then be sold with the background composited in. Did you cover the action with multiple cameras? It was almost always two, sometimes three, but the reality was when we were inside the set, with all of the guys in there, the stunt performers fighting and reflections, it didn't. It was very difficult to get a third camera in there. So for the most part, we would either fight like a low angle or a really high angle up top, or we would just stick with two cameras. For the interior camera work, we would have our glass walls in place and our lighting gag in play. And we did a pass where we had the security camera up in the, that plays in the story as well. So you have, you're observing from an upper video camera, like I think it was a Sony X1 or something. I can't remember what we used for that. But that was the surveillance camera. And then we would jump outside the action for another angle on it, different perspective on the action. And we would remove uh, the glass walls and shoot back into them. And that allowed us to see the action from almost a 360 degree perspective. And it's cool, you know, you jump inside the action for key impact, like an exclamation mark on, on the scene, and then you jump back for scale and orientation outside the, the environment, and you see like a group shot, and it's, I want to say we spent three days on that. It was extensive coverage. Joe and Anthony are crazy for coverage. The Russos are crazy for coverage. They really use that coverage to tell the story and to jump in and out 
of different shots, different perspectives to tell the story. And as difficult as it is to light for multiple cameras and cover everything from all of these different perspectives, I think you really reap the benefit of it when you're telling the story in the edit and you just have all of that available to you. Even if you just get one moment on C camera that, that works for you, you know, you can use it in the edit, which is great. And, and stepping back as the DP is a storyteller, you know, that's very valuable. Selfishly for my own technical requirements, it's a bit of a drag jamming more cameras in there because it's not as pure. Like for a DP, I think the best case scenario is a single camera. You're late for one perspective, you're late for one shot, you move on. And you're sort of spreading your resources and the effect of what you're trying to go for lighting wise across two cameras gets a little bit depleted and three cameras even more. So it's about finding that balance and, and picking your your arguments about, okay, listen guys, like this may hurt us if we had a third camera or a fourth camera here because this is going to reveal this or, or whatever it is. So it's every setup is a separate thing. When you increase the scale to something like the helicarrier battle, does your approach scale up as well? Yeah, you're on the deck or also there is, of course, there's a, there's a sequence that takes place in that sort of a, I'll call it a surveillance hub, right? That glass salad bowl thing. And, and there was, there's a bunch of action that took place in there. That was actually a very technically challenging set to shoot because the peril of the, of the scene was that they're fighting over this glass window 200 feet up, say, or whatever it was, right? And there's broken sections, so stuff is falling out. They're sliding around in the glass. And, of course, so for technical requirements for these effects, we needed green screen under there so they could pop the foreground players and, and, and scenery out and pop in DC down there, right? Or another helicarrier or whatever was underneath it. But obviously we needed a soft ambience, daylight ambience coming up because that was how they would have been lit in that environment. So that was kind of an interesting thing. And we, after a couple of weeks of development and R and D, we ended up with a honeycomb like lighting grid underneath them and again, those same color blasts that we used for the elevator moving light gags with the media server, we did a, another version of that where we could say, okay, you know, there was, we had our color forces there and then two layers of diffusion. So it was, uh, it was very soft light hitting the actors. And then if we were seeing an individual cell, and I want to say the cells were, depending on where we were in the set, you know, they might've been three feet wide by say six feet high. That changed depending on where you were, but we would say, okay, this cell, number 13, number 14, number 15, need to be green. And then we would isolate those cells with, with the LED sources and make those green so we could extract that. But then the surrounding cells were still white light, so it felt like they were still lit correctly for that environment. So that was, that was one of the tougher challenges that we had as far as technically giving the, the, you know, Dan DeLue, the VizFX supervisor, what he needed so that he could do his job and also have it feel for us to, to have the actors in the environment feel like it was lit from, from how it would actually be lit if it was hovering over DC and the sunlight is blocked out from the overhead helicarrier itself. And then you would just have this soft ambience coming up through, this, through the glass windows. What kind of diffusion did you use for the color forces? The, the lights themselves were skinned with two layers of diffusion so that the quality of the light was always soft, which was right for that environment. But then, depending on what cell was underneath the actors, we would just dial that in because they were RGB, right? So we could just dial it into green so that it could be... So essentially, we changed like three or four cells at a time to make our own green screen. Yeah, and you could do whatever. It could have been blue screen or, or whatever. But yeah, so we just did that as we needed as they moved around through the environment so that it was a, it was a balance of technically punching them out from the background, but also lighting them, you know, the, the correct way. What kind of work did you do in the color grade? Okay, so yeah, so the, the DIT, Ryan Nguyen, um, he and I would sit down and put our curves in as a reference and we would drive that back to the monitors so that for the most part, when it was feasible on set, everybody would be looking at our color uh, or our contrast and our levels 
as we wanted them. And it's kind of a balance of achieving the look that you want in camera, knowing that you're going to take that and finesse it down the line. And certainly for this film, we had so much on our plate that we were trying to capture. I think it was a really good approach as far as having Ryan's input there at the production stage. And he's essentially live color grading. And that was the first time I had ever done anything like that. And, and it was fantastic. Ryan works a lot with uh, Darius Wolski and Ridley Scott. And that's something that he's been developing, you know, on, on, on Prometheus and a number of films. That position is a very valuable asset to you on set uh, because it gets you 80, 90% of the way there for what your eventual color will be. And then um, for the actual DI, I was actually in production on Neil's next thing, uh, Chappie in Johannesburg. And so I wasn't there. Unfortunately, I wasn't there. We shot until January and I believe they finalized for the most part. Uh, the DI was finished up in January as we were finishing. So I was able to sneak in there and, and do some reviews with Steve Scott at Technicolor. And, um, for the most part, we made some very minor adjustments in combination with our references that we uh, that we put in place in the media as we captured it, as we shot, and then mixed in with the DI process, sitting down with Steve Scott, you know, sitting down with with Joe and Anthony Russo, and a big thing with with the with the Russos was they wanted certain scenes to be very very dark, and I think they wanted them to be a bit darker than what Marvel would normally be comfortable with. And so what we did was we sort of said, okay, well, we're going to get partially there. And then in the DI, they brought it down to that perfect level, you know, and in that, of course, that sort of clinical environment, you can know exactly, okay, this reference monitor is telling me exactly what we're going to see for the most part. And, and you can fine tune those levels. So that was, uh, I think, you know, for this film, that was a really good way to, uh, to work quickly and get close to the final product on set and then refine it and take it to where it needs to go in a proper DI environment where you've got a little bit more time to concentrate on, on fine-tuning the look. Well, we know the Russo brothers will return for the next Captain America film. Are you planning to as well? Yeah, both the Russos and Kevin Feige and Marvel have asked me, they sort of have, you know, I guess, penciled me in for that. And as long as everything works out schedule-wise, and you know, I'm certain, you know, certainly pushing for that, uh, I believe we would start up prep in January of uh, 2015. And yeah, so hopefully if everything aligns, you know, that'll happen and we'll take off again. But yeah, it was a really enjoyable uh, project as far as the people, you know, and everybody involved. So yeah, I would, I would love to jump onto another one with them, that's for sure. That was cinematographer Trent Opalock talking about his work on the film Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.